City. WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Online at letstalkfaith.com. Or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded. People just did their own thing without any concern for God and his standards. Now, how bad was it? It says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, when the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, it says that it grieved God that he even made man. Now, this doesn't mean, and I told you this a few weeks ago, it doesn't mean that it was just bad. Like our world is bad. What this means is it was as bad as it could get. It had reached the limit of evil and wickedness. And God says in verse 6, he was sorry that he made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I'm going to blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, and to the birds of the sky, for I'm sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace and favor in the eyes of the Lord. Apparently, Noah was the only believer on the face of the earth. was like before the flood. Hello and welcome to Verse by Verse, where our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff, is teaching us about Noah and the flood. So what was the world like before the flood? It was a world filled with immorality. It was a violent world. And yet at the same time, it was a world that was developing, a civilization, a society. Music developed, buildings were constructed, communities were being developed, as well as trades. However, there was a total indifference to the Lord. How bad was it? (laughs) According to Genesis 6-3, it was as bad as it could get. Now, our world today is bad, but we are not yet as bad as we can possibly be. I wouldn't want to live in a world like that. So as sobering as all this sounds, that is where we will begin today's verse-by-verse program. And here is Pastor Steve Kreloff. One of the most obscure statements that Jesus ever made was a remark that he made to his apostles, his disciples, when he taught them in Matthew chapter 24. He was speaking about the coming judgment of the tribulation, and he made this statement I think a lot of believers have never really thought about. He said this, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. You ever read that? You're reading along in Matthew 24 about the tribulation period and vultures, corpse, gathering. What is that talking about? What does that mean? Well, Jesus was simply making an analogy between a physical reality and a spiritual reality. And the analogy is this. Whenever you have the physical corruption of a carcass, vultures will go there to eat it. That's just a truism. Whenever you have the physical corruption of a carcass, Vultures are going to go there to eat it. In the same way, and here's the analogy, and here's the point, in the same way, whenever you have spiritual corruption, moral corruption, God's judgment will fall. Just as vultures will surely go to a dead carcass, so when there is spiritual and moral corruption, you can count on it, that judgment, God's judgment, divine judgment will fall. Jesus just taught a basic, timeless principle that moral corruption always leads to divine 
judgment. And there is no greater illustration in the Old Testament of this than the story of Noah and the flood. And now you can turn to Genesis chapter 7. We have been looking at Genesis for some time now. This morning, I'd like to read to you verses 10 through 24, though we will not cover all of these verses today, but I want you to see it in its setting. Beginning at verse 10, And it came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened, and the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of the sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him and the Lord closed it behind them. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth and the water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water and the water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered and all flesh that moved on the earth perished birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind and all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark, and the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days." With these verses, God begins to tell us, in fact, this does, not just begins, this does tell us the actual details of the flood. But I want you to know prior to this in chapters 4 through 6, and you must see the thrust of this in order to appreciate it, for these chapters before, God has been leading up to the flood. God has been telling us why this world perished and why God sends such a judgment. What was the world like before the flood? Well, we've gone over this before, but let me quickly review. It was a world filled with immorality. You read in chapter 4 about a man named Lamech who was the first one who took two wives. Total disregard for the monogamous relationship that God had established. The sacredness of marriage. Not only that, but it was a violent world. In chapter 6, we read about the violence of this world. And we went over about the Nephilim, these warriors, these giant-like warriors, violent men, the warlords of the ancient world. There was intermarriage between believers and unbelievers. And it says that they married simply because the women were beautiful. There was no concern for godliness, no concern for character. They married because they looked good to them. So it was a world filled with lustful desires. And yet at the same time, it was a world that was developing, a civilization, a society that was developing. Music we read about in chapter 4, buildings were going up, communities were being developed, uh, villages, cities we would call them, trades were being developed, and yet there was a total indifference to the Lord, a total insensitivity to the Lord. 
People just did their own thing without any concern for God and his standards. Now, how bad was it? It says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, when the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, it says that it grieved God that he even made man. Now, this doesn't mean, and I told you this a few weeks ago, it doesn't mean that it was just bad, like our world is bad. What this means is it was as bad as it could get. It had reached the limit of evil and wickedness. And God says in verse 6, he was sorry that he made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I'm going to blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, and to the birds of the sky, for I'm sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace and favor in the eyes of the Lord. Apparently Noah was the only believer on the face of the earth. Now when you take into account the longevity of life, and how many children they could have, we have to conclude that just like today, there would have been billions of people living on the earth. Of all of those people, how bad was it? There was only one man who was a genuine believer in the Lord God. Imagine that. That was the world that God said, I'm going to wipe out. And so God revealed his plan was to destroy all mankind and start over with Noah and his sons. And he would destroy them with a worldwide flood. So the last section of chapter 6 is about instructions given to Noah for building this ark. For 120 years, Noah was working on this ark. And then as we move into chapter 7, we have the actual story of the flood of judgments. I want to suggest to you that chapter 7 is about really two key spiritual lessons about judgment that emerge from there. There are two basic lessons taught all over the Bible, and you see them first in chapter 7. And lesson number one is God delivers the godly from judgment. That is always a principle, always a principle of Scripture. There is safety and security for Noah and his family in the ark. The ark, we learn in the New Testament, is a picture, is a picture of the security and safety we have in Jesus Christ. Now, we wouldn't know this unless the rest of Scripture taught us this, and we looked at First and Second Peter last week. But the ark is a picture of Jesus Christ, and so Noah was safe because God delivers the godly from judgment. Principle number two, and this is what we want to begin to look at this morning, is that God destroys the ungodly in judgment. Judgment will inevitably come to the ungodly. Now, why is this such an important subject for us? As we go through this, there's a tendency to think, look, I know from Genesis chapter 9, God's never going to destroy the earth again with a flood. So why is this even important? Is it just a history lesson to us? No, I want to tell you it's more than a history lesson. There are some amazing truths that can affect your life. First of all, why is it important? Number one, because it reveals to us some great truths about God's character. The goal of life is to know the Lord and to make him known. And this helps you to know God. It tells you about his holiness, tells you about the fact that God is just. He will not tolerate sin. We look at our own sin, and you may hate your sin, and you should hate your sin as a believer in Christ. God hates your sin even more. Holiness, justice. Some of us kind of fool around with sin, and we think it's not that bad. It is a horrible thing. It sent Christ to the cross, but it also destroyed a world of billions of people. But not only that, you see God's character of grace and his patience also in the flood. And we're going to see that later. But some marvelous truths about God's character, because you and I have to wonder as you read this, and I'm going to bring this out later, what kind of a God would destroy billions of people? You'll hear people say that to you. What kind of a God would send people to hell? What kind of a God would kill? After all, I want to remind you that it wasn't just 
old men who had lived their lives a long time, and so they're going to die. Okay, a flood might as well take them. There were young mothers. There were infants who died. There were teenagers who the day before were laughing and joking. There were people with good sense of humors. There were people who were just like us, real people, business people, and yet they were destroyed. So you think about that. What kind of a God would do that? And his character is revealed in this. Secondly, another lesson is that the flood is used by New Testament writers to point to the future judgment of the tribulation period. And it serves as a reminder to us that God will judge the world again. So it isn't simply a past history lesson. There is a future judgment coming. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 24, he said the judgment of the tribulation is worse than anything that's ever happened in this world. It's worse. That's hard to imagine. But it's worse. Hard to imagine it's going to be worse than the flood. The flood just took a few weeks. Tribulation is going to take seven years. Jesus said nothing like that's ever happened before. Number three, Jesus compared the attitude of the people in Noah's day to the attitude that will be prevalent on the face of the earth during the tribulation period. But you know that attitude is still here. We'll look at that later. It is very relevant for us. The same attitude that your neighbors have and my neighbors have just going about doing their business, not concerned about judgment, just trying to survive in this life and make it work for them and trying to find the good life. That is the same attitude that prevailed on the face of the earth in Noah's day. Another lesson that emerges from this and why it's important is that it forces us to accept the truthfulness of the Bible. If you've ever done any kind of evangelism, especially with those who are uh, college graduates or on the college campus now, they will question the validity and the truthfulness of what the Bible says about the flood. And even if they accept the flood, which they probably don't, they will tell you that it was simply a local flood. There could never be, they would say, a worldwide flood. Well, in a future message, we'll look at that. But it helps you to think through, biblically, some issues. And we've looked at some of those. How could the animals come to Noah? How could he take all those animals on the ark? How big was the ark? There are all kinds of questions that people have scientifically about that. So it forces us to think through some of these issues. And finally, why is it important? Because it ought to motivate us to witness to people before it's too late. Because judgment is coming. And we live in a very comfortable country Most of us have never been terribly uncomfortable physically in our lives, and so we tend to forget how horrible and devastating judgment is going to be. So this serves as a reminder to us. So with these issues in mind, and the main message in mind, keeping it in perspective, and the main message is that God destroys the ungodly, the passage can be broken down into two aspects of the flood. We'll look at it this morning, aspect number one, the time of the flood. In just these few verses, it's amazing how many relevant truths emerge from this. The time of the flood. Let's begin by looking at verse 10. Moses writes, And it came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. No sensationalizing here, just a straightforward statement. Now, in the previous verses, we're informed that one week prior to the flood, seven days before the flood actually came, God told Noah to enter the ark with his family and the animals. So this last week before the flood has really been a period of marvelous grace. One last opportunity for people to enter the ark and to escape the judgment. One last time before the judgment would come. But according to verse 10, now grace was over. The period of grace has ended. It's too late once the door is closed and the judgment has begun. But God not only tells us about the fact of the flood 
that it had arrived, but he gives us its precise date and time. Do you realize that? Look at verse 11. The precise date is given. It took place, it says in verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were open. Now, we read the flood began on the 17th day of the second month of Noah's 600th year. Why is this date given to us? You know what? I don't know. I'm not really sure. I'm going to make a suggestion to you in a moment, but I'll tell you this. It does remind us that the story of the flood is not a religious myth. You do not date religious myths. You do not carefully date events that are part of a myth. This is not a myth. Though it's very interesting, in almost every culture of the world, there is some remembrance passed down about the flood. In almost every ancient culture, but nothing like the specifics of this, because this is God's inspired record of it. Now, why is this dated? Let me give you my educated guess. I can't prove this from Scripture. I think this is right. It's really not that important if I'm not right here, but I'm going to tell you why I think it's dated. Most likely, Moses, who is the writer of Genesis, dated the beginning of the flood because that's how momentous occasions, significant events were experienced in the life of the nation of Israel. Whenever there would be something that would take place in the life of Israel that was a significant event, you would read something like, on that day, this took place. On that day. And so it seems to me that most likely Moses is telling us, on this day, this took place. Because it was an incredible, significant event. And what a day that was. The end of verse 11 says this, on the same day, and there's the thought, on that same day, And remember, this was written for the children of Israel, so it makes sense, written for the nation of Israel, that Moses would put it that way. On the same day, all the fountains of the deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were open. I want you to know it is a mistake to think that the flood was a result of just a lot of rainfall. Sort of like we're in the tropics, and we get a downpour, and it just happened like that. That is not accurate. The Bible says that the waters came from two directions. And I want to paint a picture of this so that you'll never forget it, because this is something that was so incredible, and you can thank God it'll never happen again. He says that in Genesis 9. That's what the rainbow reminds us of. It'll never happen like this. First of all, the first direction, it says the fountains of the deep burst open. What does that mean? In other words, the vast subterranean oceans upon which the earth rested burst open, and for 150 days it spilled out upon the earth. I don't believe the world before the flood was, in fact, I know it wasn't like the world we have today. Mountains weren't as high, and the oceans, as we look at a globe and we see uh, these incredible oceans, especially the Atlantic and the Pacific and how huge they are, I don't think that they were that way back before the flood. Most of the waters of the ocean were underneath the crust of the earth. There were waterways, and we know there were rivers, and there were probably some oceans, but I don't think they were vast like we have them today. The waters underneath the crust of the earth began to crack. The earth cracked, and all around the planet, they began to gush forth. Not just water, it would take mud, probably be very hot, and the waters began to come out. 
sort of like a volcanic eruption, and the waters that the earth rested upon burst forth. Secondly, it says the floodgates of the sky were opened. So now it comes from another direction. Not only is it coming from the earth, but it's also coming from the sky. This does not mean that it just rained hard, sort of a downpour. To understand what took place in Noah's day, I think it's important to go back in Genesis to chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, we read about the creation week. And we read in verse 2, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. The surface of the deep would be waters. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So at that point, it was dark, and it was uh, just a mass of waters covering this planet. Look at verses 6 through 8. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and morning a second day. A mass of water originally covered this planet. But on the second day of creation, God divided the mass of water by taking some of it, not all of it, but some of it, and he elevated it above the earth. I don't think that these were just clouds. Many, many Bible teachers would say, and I would agree with them, that there was a transparent canopy vapor that circled the planet, giving it sort of a greenhouse effect. There is evidence today that the world before the flood was sort of a um, mild tropical climate. And let me just give you some evidence for this. First of all, I don't think it could possibly be just normal rain clouds because scientists tell us that if all the rain clouds over all the planet burst at the same time, you'd have about a fraction of an inch of rain covering the planet. That's obviously not what took place in Noah's day. It also says in Genesis 2, verses 5 and 6, that a mist used to rise from the surface of the ground and uh, would sort of water the earth. It hadn't rained then. But let me also read to you some evidence about a canopy and a greenhouse effect, how devastating the flood really was. I'm reading from a great book called The World That Perished by John Whitcomb, many years professor at Grace Theological Seminary. He writes this, in the waters above, he's referring to another book now. I'm quoting from one book, but he's referring to a book called In the Waters Above. That's a uh, Moody Press book. A masterful study of the catastrophic effects of the collapse of the pre-flood vapor canopy, Joseph C. Dillo, in highly readable fashion and in amazing detail, carries the reader step-by-step through the controversies that have surrounded the discovery, watch this, of frozen mammoths. Now, mammoths are like elephants. Mammoths and other animals in the great tundras of Siberia, Alaska, and the islands of the Arctic Ocean, similar in size to and somewhat larger than the Indian elephant, mammoths lack the oil-producing glands in their skin that would have enabled them to live in cold climates. The presence of a 3.5-inch layer of fat indicates a large food supply no longer available in these regions and not protection from cold. Even the possession of a woolly coat was no more the mark of an Arctic animal than is the thick fur of a tropical tiger, especially when it is seen that their skin lacked the erector muscles characteristic of all Arctic mammals known today. Dillo provides overwhelming evidence that the climate of these northern regions was once warm, 
And then he quotes, Baron Toll, the Arctic explorer, found remains of a saber-toothed tiger and a 90-foot plum tree with green leaves and ripe fruit on its branches over 600 miles north of the Arctic Circle in the New Siberian Islands. Today, the only vegetation that grows there is a one-inch high willow. Dr. Jack A. Wolf, in a U.S. Geological Survey report, 1978, told that Alaska once teemed with tropical plants. He found evidence of mangroves and palm trees there, and he goes on to say some other things. Fascinating, fascinating things. So I want you to understand that what we're talking about now is not just rain clouds that opened, and it was, you know, a tropical rain. This was the canopy. These were the waters that had been lifted up from the oceans, from the waters that covered the earth. And they have been suspended in the sky. And now it says the canopy collapsed. Could you imagine? Wow, the fact that there is evidence that mangroves, saber-toothed tigers, and palm trees once existed in what is now a frozen wasteland is truly staggering. I'm finding this study to be very interesting. And I hope you're being challenged by it also. Our teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. If you are ever in the Clearwater area, you are invited to attend Lakeside. For more information about the location and service times of Lakeside Community Chapel, please surf to lakesidechapel.com. And while you're surfing, you can also check out versebyverseradio.org, where you can subscribe to the Verse by Verse podcast. We're out of time on today's program, but please come back tomorrow when we will continue our study of Noah and...